If you're uh, new here today, we've uh, been walking through a series looking at our, our church's core values. And core values of a church, especially when they're written down, they, they act as kind of a guardrail for a church where you need to stop and kind of come back and go, is this who we are? So that's how we're approaching it this way. And I want to put the first value or the value that we're going to be digging in a little bit today. And it says this, we value personal spiritual growth. God desires for his people to live a transformed life. Now, at first glance, it seems pretty obvious, and I, and I think it is, especially if you've been one who has grown up in a church, you, you, you've heard that word spiritual growth, maybe you've heard the word maturity, transformation, and even the technical term sanctification would be with that. But let me put up Ephesians 4.11, just to give a snapshot again of why. He writes this, Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And, and here's this phrase, to mature manhood. You could say mature womanhood. To the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we would no longer be children. We're growing up. Tossed to and fro by the waves, carried by the every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Paul is now writing here to this church and he's saying, a faith needs to move from infancy, infancy and it needs to grow up in one's faith. And I think that's pretty obvious for us. And I think, again, if you've grown up in a church, you would go, spiritual growth, yeah. We're supposed to do that. So earlier in the week, there was a little bit of a tension for me. And I want to put a picture on the screen here for you. Um, the, the tension was this. Do I just dismiss you and go, everybody assumes spiritual growth, we need it, let's go for it, and let's go do donuts together? That would, that would be on, on one hand. But the other side of, do we ever understand what a theology of spiritual growth really is about? So I know some of you are disappointed and want to go out and have donuts here right away, but uh, we're going to dig into some theology this morning. But I would remind you that spiritual growth, there are a couple of questions that we need to wrestle with beyond just assuming that it needs to happen. Look, look a couple, I'll put those on the screen for you. How do we define spiritual growth? Now, I'm not going to go here today, but I want to dig into the second question. How does spiritual growth happen? What are the things around it that make it happen in our lives? Now, if you've got your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be using this text here this morning, or maybe you've got a pad or a phone that you use. But turn to uh, chapter 1, verse 5, and that's where we want to uh, begin to highlight here this morning. And I want to read that here, starting at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now understand this passage using these words, and we can point to these words like virtue, knowledge, steadfastness, love, all of those would be symbolic of growing in our faith. 
But here's kind of a, a trick question, maybe. In answering how it happens, how spiritual growth occurs, it's very easy to zero in on a phrase here, and you'll see, and you'll notice this underlying phrase, make every effort. Now, at first glance, we can conclude that Peter here is teaching us that spiritual growth is about our, our effort, trying really, really hard to add these qualities to our lives. If we would just commit to a greater effort, we walk out of the church today and I'm going to work at virtue tomorrow and I'm going to work at godliness the next day, love, brotherly love the next day, and we're going to increase in our spiritual maturity. So let's just double our effort and let's go out and eat donut holes. Okay. No, the challenge is that oftentimes, if you look at it that way, spiritual growth is fundamentally about commitment. And knowing that commitment, it takes some time. We take commitment and we make time, it equals spiritual growth. And that's what many people believe. Now, there's also a nuance, I think, to this one as well. That some people like it very simple. Just give me the quick course, give me the five steps to spiritual growth, give me the right Bible study, the right series, and then add a little time to it, and poof, I'm growing up in my faith. I think a lot of people like that. Matter of fact, I'm convinced that a lot of teachers and Sunday school teachers and pastors even, they actually buy into this method. Too many people have bought and said, you know what, it's just about commitment. And if we just commit ourselves to wanting to change and do the right thing, and listen maybe to the right teacher, especially those that pump us up to help us resolve tomorrow to go out and I'm going to live for Jesus tomorrow, I'm going to spiritually go, and we, we want people to pump us up to make our lives more committed to Jesus. Is that really the way it's supposed to be? Just find the right motivation. But let me put verse 5 on the screen again. I, I want to show you the context when it calls for this commitment. And what the author is really maybe trying to communicate. Look at verse 5. For this reason. I don't know if you caught that when he read that first. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And then goes on. For this reason. Okay. What is Peter, Peter saying here? A, a belief that he has. There's some reason. A precursor to the effort that we actually put towards spiritual growth. So here's where we need to back up. I want to back up to verse 1. I intentionally left that out for you. Look at verse 1. Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now to stop there a second, verse 1 tells us that he's talking to a group of believers, those that have a faith. Okay, that's, that's very clear here. It's not talking to the unbeliever. 
Look at verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What's going on here? It's the introduction to a letter, and in many ways, kind of that that greeting in it. And and there's really a subtle blessing here that Peter is speaking toward them. May peace and grace grow in your lives. So it's almost a short prayer in the letter that they would that he's blessing them. Look at verse three, though. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this reason. Now we're going to dig here a little bit, but it's uh, there's a lot there I'm going to leave out as well. But 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4, really gives the foundation for spiritual growth, for spiritual change. But those two key phrases, he has granted to us. He has granted to us. If you have the NIV, by the way, you'll notice that has been given to us. If, if that's literal as well. That would work. But let me explain this and see how dig in a little bit how this spiritual change takes place. But where I need to begin is I need to give you a short history lesson this morning. And it goes back all the way to the early stages of the Reformation. Now, if you don't know what the Reformation was, it, it's the, the birth where the Catholic Church had, had turmoil and the Protestant Church began, early 1500s. And so people were breaking away from the Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church, understand, that was the church back then. There was the Eastern and the Western, but we're speaking about the Western here in this sense. But I want to put a picture on the screen for you. Anybody know who that is? Good. Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Catholic, but Martin Luther started a theological debate within the Catholic Church. In essence, he was kind of lighting, you know, had a match and was lighting a a wick where everything was going to blow up. But he believed that there was a perversion of the church's doctrine surrounding redemption and grace. So he was a monk, by the way. He was a pastor. He was a, a professor at the University of Wittenberg. But he condemned the entanglement of grace and the indulgences and good works. Now, if you don't know what an indulgence is, it was a payment that one would pay money to the Catholic Church where you could purchase kind of an exemption from punishment of the sin that you committed. So now now understand, you couldn't do it for murder. That was They wouldn't do that. But if you had lust or anger or something, you literally could get, obtain an indulgence to take away the penalty of that. And Luther, not liking that too well, he wrote a paper called the 95 Theses, published it on October 31st, 1517. And he attacked the indulgence system, and he insisted that the church didn't have that authority. And by the way, it was during this time that the Bible was really being elevated in terms of its sole authority. 
Okay, that was taking place. But there was this equal push as well in the document that justification is by faith and not by works. So he wrote that 95 theses, he posted, posted on the wall, and, and now realize Luther, after a little while, he was excommunicated from the church, kicked out of the church, but it began a reform movement, and it really fractured all of Christendom at that time. But indulgences and justification by faith is where many people stop with Luther. And I'm going to give you a couple more pieces, but you normally don't find them in the history books that you would read about Luther at the time. See, for Luther, it was more than just indulgences. It was more than just the theological issue of of grace. The debate also centered around the issue of sanctification, spiritual growth, transformation, those words. See, Luther believed, and I think he's really right, is that a philosopher by the name of Aristotle had, had, had teachings that went down over the centuries and that Aristotle's teachings got infused into the church. Now, Aristotle, again, was a philosopher. If you want to know the time frame, he died in 322 B.C. So you understand how much he influenced for how many years. He actually tutored Alexander the Great. I don't know if you, if you maybe know that name from history. Luther believed Aristotle's ethics, his system, was deeply infused in the educational systems of the day, the colleges of the day, the seminaries of that day. Now, one of the beliefs of Aristotle here, I want to put this on the screen for you. And if you're taking notes, I think there's a fill-in-blank there. The history of Aristotle, Aristotle believed this. We can become just by doing just deeds. We can be righteous by doing righteous deeds. That was, that's a summary of the ethics, again, that was infused into the church. And Martin Luther despised the teaching of Aristotle. And matter of fact, before he wrote the 95 theses, he actually had written a number, a, a, a one earlier, called the 97 Theses. Matter of fact, I think Luther, many that read it go, this was more important to Luther than the 95. I want to put you some, give you some of the points. Now, when he posted this stuff, these were just one, two-liners, kind of, a whole bunch of them, and, and you kind of wonder, why did people get so angry over them, even on the 95 one? But let me put the 97 on here. Number 40, I'll begin with number 40, just a few. We do not become righteous by doing righteous deeds. Having been made righteous, we do righteous deeds. You notice the difference there. This is an opposition to the philosophers. He's speaking to all of those that have brought this into the church. 41, virtually the entire ethics of Aristotle is the worst enemy of grace. This is an opposition to the scholastics, meaning that the scholastics were teaching this stuff. 42, so he's throwing mud at other professors in his university. It is an error to maintain that Aristotle's statement concerning happiness does not contradict Catholic doctrine. This is in opposition to the doctrine on morals. 
You don't see how he doesn't really like Aristotle. Look at 43. It is an error to say that no man can become a theologian without Aristotle. That's what was taught. If you're going to become a pastor, a priest, you've got to read Aristotle's ethics and learn them. And go, this is in opposition to the common opinion. And 44, no one, look at this one, can become a theologian unless he becomes one without Aristotle. Okay, Luther doesn't like Aristotle. Okay, to him, Aristotle was from the devil. But recognize that Aristotle and ethics was infused in the teaching of the church that if you do good things, you're going to become righteous. There are other pieces to it as well, but I can't get into that. But let me try to give you an illustration how it works practically with us here this morning. Say I come along and, you know what, I want to grow in my faith. And, you know, I know I need, if I do some good things, it's just going to reinforce some stuff. So what I go, okay, what can I do to serve and what can I do to grow? And, and you get this idea, you know, ah, I was down at Walmart yesterday buying groceries and there's a lot of grandmas that go out, you know, and they have trouble getting the groceries from the store out to the car. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down there and I'm going to begin to help the grannies unload their groceries into the car. I do that for Deanna because she's a granny, okay? <laughs> she is, right? <laughs> she is. But, but okay, and, and all of a sudden you realize, let's see, 30 days a habit, Right? So I'm going to go down there 30 days in a row and I'm going to help these ladies and these grandmas and I'm going to help put their groceries in the car and guess what? It's going to reinforce that as I do good things, it's going to begin to change me in my, my walk with Jesus. And it will reinforce that I'm a good person. So I do it for 30 days hoping that it will become a virtue, service will become a virtue, and I will be becoming, becoming a, a, a better program or a better person as a result of that. So this fall, I was going to ask Steve if he wanted to start the granny grocery carrying program for this youth this fall. But listen to this, even some of the scholars of the day, they believe that. If I do good things, I become a good person. But they even went farther. And if I started that granny program and went about four or five days and I got tired of it and said, you know what, I really don't like this, and I quit, see, the reason that I didn't follow through is that, you know what, I was just lazy. I was lazy. Now, if you've ever heard of the name Erasmus, that was really one of Erasmus's points. That laziness really kept you from being a righteous person. If you don't stick with it long enough, if you don't overcome the will, you're just not going to grow spiritually. You're just not committed to the granny's grocery program of spiritual change. But what about Luther and the other reformers? To summarize it this way, the process of doing good things to become a good person or becoming righteous, he would go, it's full of garbage. Let me put up a statement on the screen. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on this one here. Luther, 
We always do what we want, and you cannot choose what you want. Just ponder that one for a second. You go, what does that mean? You're, for some of you, are going, let's just go out and do the donuts, okay, at this point. <laughs> so much thinking. But understand this, our choices are always made because of our strongest desires. And that second phrase there, let me put the next one up for, that Luther believed. Our choices are bound to our desires, Simply to say, there is a reason for every choice we make. Understand, this is a little deeper theology, I know that. But, so I want to put a statement, a quote on the screen so you understand and, and be, summarize that. I said this, or this is from a guy that was writing on this, a man or a woman who doesn't have the Spirit of God cannot do something with the motive of God unless God's divine power has been granted to us first. first or second Peter 1. Luther taught when salvation comes, God has now changed our hearts and there is a capacity to choose a movement toward holiness. There is a new desire to please God. Now, we have to recognize one thing. As we come to Christ, it's saying that the Holy Spirit has put a new desire in us to want to please God. But here's the trick. Oftentimes, we think that our old desires have, have gone away. They have not. They are from the flesh, the old nature. Do we catch that? Where does, where does this go? Let me to fill in your notes. The next, The key issue here, folks, on spiritual growth is this. Spiritual growth always starts on the heart level. On the heart level. But we keep defaulting to behavior is where spiritual growth comes from. Let me show you Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. See, bad character always starts in the heart. James 1.4, look at this one. It's, this is pretty intense here. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I'm speaking to believers here. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Each person is lured by his own desires that, or her desires that are in the heart. And when the desire wins out, the, the bad ones, sin flows. And spiritual growth, frankly, comes to a screeching halt. See, in spiritual growth, we, we want to avoid the desires of the heart. But keep, people keep believing that spiritual growth is about making right choices. Do the right action, create a habit. Then spiritual growth will occur, and especially if we have enough commitment and enough willpower. It's about commitment. Don't do the bad things, do the good things. By the way, that's the way the whole world operates. Matter of fact, if you look, look closely, I've seen Christian parenting programs out there. 
And on the surface, they're saying this is God's plan for parenting. And what they're fundamentally doing is teaching Aristotle's way of righteousness. Control your kids, get your kids to act the right way, and you're going to have a good kid. It's not going to work, folks. This is what Aristotle believed. Now, again, some of you are going, okay, you'd rather have the donuts right now. Let me put 1 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 3 on the screen again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Who's him? Jesus. Who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he, who's he? Jesus, you could probably say God as well, has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See that underlying phrase, knowledge of him, of Jesus. Jesus says it's granted us all things that pertain to godliness through Christ. Through Jesus. You realize you stop and go, the substance of our salvation is that we know God through the work of Jesus on the cross. Isn't that right? But the power to move toward godliness or spiritual growth is also knowing the person who's revealing the truth and the promises. Growing in maturity and faith Folks, must have a relational union with Jesus, with Christ. But people and parents and pastors keep teaching that the starting point is trying harder, being more committed. And you know what? In many ways, that's easier. I have to be honest with you. Just to try harder, to do the right thing. And it's pretty easy to ignore a relationship with Christ. Parents, kids are leaving and going away to college and so many of them are walking away from their faith. And I think here, in part, is what's happened is they've understood that Christianity is about a commitment to act right and to do the right things. But they have no power because there's really no desire to have a relationship with Jesus. See, his little desire to actually, through his word, have a life-giving relationship with him. And that's why the word of God is so critical in this process. Folks, in spiritual growth, the desire must change. The source of desire is the heart again. The heart must change. The heart must be attracted to a love relationship with Christ. Now, now here's, let me get to some application and go, well, how, how can you stir this to have a deeper love and relationship with Christ? And number one for your notes, I said it this way. First, we must understand the complexity of sin within our lives. Our sin is deeply bound up into our desires. And it feels to where we give our love. Is it going to be go toward Jesus or is it going to be given towards something else? Matter of fact, let me show you Hebrews 12.1. This applies here so directly. Therefore, once we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
And the sin which clings so closely, it entangles there. It's another word you could use. Let us run with endurance a race that is set before us. Now, I understand running and effort, I'm not dismissing that. But running toward Jesus with 150 pounds of sin within us, we're not going to go very fast. So we got to figure out how to get rid of the sin. But the flesh battles us on this one. Because here's the tension and here's the, the desire, frankly, is not to look in a mirror and see our own sin first. We would rather prefer look around and see somebody else's sin. Matter of fact, I just, I've used this before, Martin Luther's definition of sin. Love curve back to the heart. Love tries to go out and go, ah, it's about me. I'm going to love, no, it's about me. That was his definition of sin. There's another piece. Look at verse 2 from Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder, and look at this phrase, and the perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when effort is given, it's running toward Jesus. It's not just, I'm going to change. Number two, I said it this way. We just need to look to Jesus first. Spiritual growth starts with looking to Christ. When he becomes our treasure, when we treasure him above all things, when we give our affections to him, when we spend time with him, when we sit with the Holy Spirit and let a union develop with him with the word of God, it brings forth fruit and spiritual change and righteousness and a changed life. See, we also must begin, as we look to Christ, to embrace Him and the work that He's done on the cross. When we look to Christ, He must be that which we are aiming for. Not knowledge, not self-discipline, not some granny food-carrying program. We look to Jesus, get to know Him. There's one more, I think, that's important. Number three, we must fully embrace the depth of the love that the Father has for us through his beloved Son. We must embrace this profoundly. See, when we see Christ dying for us, when we recognize our own sin and we go, he died for me, and it was because the Father loves me, we begin to see his kindness, his mercy, his grace, and as we repent and get rid of our sin, we see his goodness and recognize when we begin to turn and walk toward him and repent, he becomes attractive. God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit become attractive for us. But God is one who's working for us. I want to put up on the screen Romans 5.3. Connected to hard situations, but even salvation. Look at this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. By the way, I'll just stop there. At times, you understand, in spiritual growth, one of the things we absolutely need is suffering. It says it. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, do we believe this? 
that he saved us, that he's pouring out his love in us through the Holy Spirit? Do we believe that God wants us to show favor and be kind toward us? Do we believe that? Do you believe that is his nature? Or do you believe that God and the Father is some moral cop who's looking for you to pull you over and to punish you and to write you some kind of a ticket? See, his grace and the gospel can win the hearts of people. The gospel and the cross shows us the beauty of Christ, the goodness of God. The cross shows us the love of the Father that he gives to his own son as he died for us. Folks, that is a winsome God. Do you realize the Spirit was sent to win our hearts for salvation? And listen to this, and for sanctification. Spiritual growth starts in our hearts, hearts and we got to listen to the Spirit and through his word begin to go and taste and see that he really is good. Now I want to close. I want to throw a suggestion toward your direction. Somebody emailed me this week, and, and one of the things they said, hey, Ken, how, what about throwing out some discussion questions that parents might be able to use if they're sitting in here and, and maybe to talk about things to talk about their kids with. And I really like the idea, so I'm going to do that from time to time. And I didn't perfect these perfectly, so you're going to have to, it was kind of be when the sermon outline went to print, was I probably would have adjusted them a bit. But a couple here. What is one thing happening right now where Jesus isn't inviting you or a family member or a friend to look to Jesus? Could you talk to a child like that and say something's going on in your world where we need to look to Jesus, the perfecter of our faith? Could, could you have a conversation with a young child like that or a teenager or an older one? And that second one, does looking to Jesus look like really trying harder? We need to help our children understand that the changes of their heart will not become by trying harder for Jesus we got to help them know Jesus. See the desire of the Father for them, the love that the Father has for them. That's where it becomes where the issue is. I want to close. I think there's appropriate text here, Ephesians chapter 3. I want to read this for you. This is the message, but this section of Scripture that Paul writes just speaks to a way of understanding God and the Son in a way that's really unique. Look what Peterson writes here in verse 8. And so here I am. This is Paul writing, preaching and writing about things that are way over my head the inexhaustible riches and the generosity of Christ, my task is to bring out in the open and make plain what God, who created all this in the first place, has been doing in secret and behind the scenes all along. Through the followers of Jesus like yourselves gathered in the churches, this extraordinary plan of God, it's what God is doing behind the scenes, is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. And all this is proceeding along lines planned all along by God and then executed in Christ Jesus. When we trust him, when we trust him, we are free to say whatever needs to be said and to bold to go wherever we need to go. 
So don't let my present trouble on your behalf get you down. Be proud. Verse 14, my response is to get down on my knees before the Father. This magnificent Father who parcels all heaven and earth, I ask him to strengthen you by his Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. Catch that. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you will be able to take with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything you know far more than you can ever imagine and guess or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us. His spirit deeply and gently within us. Let's pray.